Now, Paul's going to close this section of Titus chapter 3 with a focus on relationships. And if you think about it, this is so practical because most of life is built around relationships and really our Christian faith, it's really interconnected relationally with other Christians, with non-Christians. God has designed us as people to first have a living relationship with a holy and living God, but also to have relationship with others. And how that takes place is so important. And really the book of Titus, it's a very compact book. It's only three chapters. And Paul just packs in a lot of instruction in those three chapters. But each chapter has a focus on relationship. Chapter 1 is a focus on the believer's relationship with the Lord, how it's modeled out through uh, the leadership within the church. Chapter 2 deals with the relationship of believers with other believers in the church. Chapter 3 deals with the relationship of believers with those that don't follow Christ outside the church. Relationships and how important it is for us to know how to treat one another in a way that honors God. So Paul's going to wrap up his final comments here in these last seven verses. And his instruction here in verses 9 through 15 will give us some insight on how we as believers should respond to others. And Paul's going to give us four commands. These are imperatives, imperative verbs. There are commands. Two of them are warnings. Watch out. Two of them are encouragements. So let's take a look at the text. This is verses 9 through 15. Let me read. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So how should we respond to others? The first one's a warning. Avoid false teachers. We as believers in Christ are going to encounter people that don't believe the truth of the Bible. They'd be considered a false teacher. Some people like to battle with those guys. But Paul would say, you know what, just avoid them. Don't deal with it. Move on. Work with people that are open to the gospel. Look at verse 9 again. It says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, as we have review, if you just look right above at verses 7 and 8, Paul had basically given the purpose for the Christian, the mission, if you will. And our mission is to speak the truth, live the life. We're to speak the truth of Christ, and we're to live it out before others. If you look at verses 7 and 8, it says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We're to do good deeds, be sound in doctrine. We're to live dignified lives. We're, we're to be, have speech that is above reproach. We're to be basically Christians living in the world, living out Christ before others. In other words, we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so Paul wants that main purpose, that main idea to kind of be thrust forward, and he wants nothing to hinder it. 
nothing to hinder us from living out what God is calling us to do and to be before him. And so the first thing he says is, avoid this stuff. Avoid these people that are all into controversies and disputes. Avoid them. And this is kind of a running theme in Titus. Now, in chapter 1, he says in verses 10 and 11, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sword gain. So you have these people that come into the church, they're trying to rip people off financially, and then what they did is they wormed their way into people's homes. And what they'd bring with them, though, was false teaching. They'd tantalize people with something that sounded interesting, but it wasn't biblical, it wasn't real, it, it had no basis of fact, but they'd worm their way in, and they were causing splits in families. Some people believed their stuff, others would hold to the gospel and would rip these families apart. And so Paul's very serious about this stuff. And he wants Titus to understand, help your people, Titus, to be strong in the faith. And one way you're strong in the faith is you stay away from the weird stuff. Verse 16 of chapter 1 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deeds. They're worthless. People that are going to bring in strange doctrines, weird teachings, They're no good for anybody. And so he begins right here in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. Now, he starts with a conjunction, but, so we know that this is a transition. So he's saying, hey, live the life, speak it. Speak the truth, live the life. Speak the truth, live the life, but avoid these guys. That's what he says, right into a transition. And he begins with a verb, avoid. Now, this is a command. It's an imperative verb, and it's the kind of command that keeps on going. He says, keep on avoiding. If these guys keep showing up, don't, do, don't even give them the time of day. They're not worth it. Don't spin your wheels with them. You know, I've done a fair amount of street witnessing, and I always run into these kind of people. They, they love disputes. I give them about a minute because I always think there's somebody out there that really wants the gospel. Isn't that true? And so when I know they're not interested, I say, thank you, and I move on. He's saying, move on here. Now, Paul himself would know more than anybody, right? He was plagued by these people called the Judaizers. Wherever he would go, these Judaizers would follow him, and they had a blend of the Bible, but they also brought in Jesus, and they kind of brought in the Mosaic law, and they would twist the scriptures. They were false teachers. And Paul knows that if these guys worm their way in, they can cause harm to the believer, particularly the weak believer. Now, he said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Worldly and empty chatter. You know what I thought about? Talk shows. Worldly and empty chatter. Now, we live in a totally different age, right, than Paul did. But boy, we have a computer on our hips, right, don't we? Or in your pocket or in your purse, And we have a computer at home and we have access to the internet and there are TV shows and all this stuff going on. There is so much information. We're in information overload. But most of it it is false teaching. Stay away from the voices, that worldly empty chatter that you hear on the entertainment tonight. There's no truth in that stuff. How about The View? Come on, give me a break. How about your favorite sitcom? Honestly, most of the favorite sitcoms, mm, 
Could the Lord sit there and watch that with you? Probably not. And then he goes into foolish controversies. Foolish is the Greek word moros. It means moron. Moronic debates is basically what it is. Things that don't make sense. Why give your time to it? Controversies is the Greek word zietes. And it means a person that is given over to debate. They just want to debate for debate's sake. It's not, they're not so much interested in truth. They just want to fight. These kind of people love to bring things that cause fights. And these false teachers, they always want to hit, attack the historicity of the Bible and the truth of Scripture, the things that are affirmed there. Now, this is what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor pay attention to myths in the genealogies that give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is the truth. These guys don't want the truth. And so Paul would say, avoid those controversies. Stay away from them. And, and so that's the first one. The second one, he says, is avoid genealogies. Avoid genealogies. Now, these are wild interpretations of Old Testament scriptures, and particularly the genealogy of names. You know how the Old Testaments have a lot of names? So-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But what these guys do is they twist it and they begin to, to put allegory or stories to this. One commentator said this. He says, there's an ancient book called the Book of Jubilees, which has many of these Jewish allegories and genealogical speculations, where instead of just recognizing the fact that there was a man named this who begot a man named that or whatever, they read into it some bizarre speculation. And all of a sudden, there's a secret, elevated, mystical truth that becomes to them a real truth, and they spend fables and legends out of that, and they conduct a whole religion that is generated out of hell itself, he says. Foolish controversies, genealogies. The third one is avoid strife. Avoid strife. This is the Greek word eris, and it means rivalry or contention. Some people just like contention. Have you ever met them? They just like to fight for fight's sake. And they're really not so much concerned about biblical truth. They just want to cause an issue. They like to be seen. It might be self-attention or whatever. He says, you know what? Avoid them. Stay away from them. They're no good for you. And the last one is disputes about the law. Now, this was very clear in 1 Timothy, so I'll read you that text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, Some men strain from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions They want to be teachers of the law, even though they don't even understand the law, and they don't even understand what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There are people that make claims about the law, yet they don't even understand it. And they're false teachers. And Paul would say, you know what? Don't give them your time. As a matter of fact, if you look back at verse 9, he says, for they are what? Unprofitable and they're worthless Weird theology, strange speculations, unbelievable controversies, people who set dates for the end times. You know what I'm saying? And they get people all wrapped up in this stuff, and it pulls you away from simple devotion to Christ. Now, this is nothing new. This has plagued the church for centuries, and there's been heresy after heresy after heresies that's come into the church. I'm going to just share with you a few of them. One in the early centuries, in the first, second century, was called adoptionism. This is where they believe that God granted the man, Jesus, powers and adopted him as the son, but he was never fully God. 
Arianism taught that Jesus was a lesser created being. Noceticism taught that Jesus was divine, but he only seemed human. He was kind of a spirit being. Gnosticism taught kind of a dualism. You have spirit and you have the physical nature, but they never meet. So you can do whatever you want on the physical, go to a party, get drunk, have sex, but it never affects your spiritual nature. Kenosis, Jesus gave up some of his divine, um, his divine attributes while he was on earth. Marsonianism believed that the God of the Old Testament was evil. The God of the New Testament is good. Modalism teaches that there's one God in three modes. Not the true Trinity, one God in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, but one God in three modes. That means that God puts on a mask. Hi, I'm God the Father. Hi, I'm God the Son. Hi, I'm God the Holy Spirit. Three modes. Pagelanism, a man is unaffected by the fall. That means that they're totally sinless, that, that the sin nature isn't in man. And the last one, triatheism, teaches that the Trinity is really three separate gods, polytheism. And I could go on and on and on and on. I mean, there were pages and pages and pages. And you can go to a number of different um, websites and find these things. The bottom line is the enemy wants to distract you. The enemy wants to worm his way in. He wants to bring in false teaching. And what Paul is saying, you know, you can work yourself all up on this stuff and you can study to, you know, you got to fight these guys. It'd be better to just know the gospel well. Ask God to lead you to people who are hungry and spend and invest your time in that. Know the truth and stand on it. You know, there's a weird teaching out right now that's kind of hit the church, but it's very popular in our culture. And it's angels. People love to talk about angels. And I, I found something uh, written by a historian. His name is Joseph Leconte. And he notes that many people today are obsessed with angels. For example, there's a new book out called Angels 101, an introduction to connecting, working, and healing with angels. And it's written by metaphysicist Doreen Virtue. And it was written at the end of last year. And in contrast to the Bible, where people are in sin and need the grace of God and be saved through Jesus, she teaches that angels love every person unconditionally. They help everyone who calls on them, regardless of their faith or lack of it. And, and they see the God within each of us. Angels aren't judgmental. They only bring love into our lives. And you're safe with angels. And you can totally trust angels. Virtue said angels can be counted on to assist people. They can even help you mapping out your travel plans. So you can contact angels for this. They will help you to get an extremely nice, warm, and friendly, competent customer service representative when you call on the airline to book your reservations. Angels will help you to avoid the long check-in lines, and they always have sweet personnel that will help you. Angels let you sail through the airport security, and you won't even be searched. And angels will protect and deliver your baggage, and your baggage will be the first on that carousel out. So, by the way, angels make no demands. Rather, they wait to be summoned to help us to overcome the difficulty in life. And virtue says, you never have to be afraid that angels would ever ask you to do anything that would make you feel afraid or uncomfortable. Now, she's been on CNN. She's been on Oprah. She's been on The View. And basically, her message is summarized by this. She says, I've discovered that the quickest and most efficient route to happiness is through connecting with angels. Well, first of all, angels are God's servants. They're not our servants. 
Now, they serve God to serve people, but it's always on his behalf. And angels are much more concerned with glorifying God and your holiness than they are with your happiness and comfort. This is a lie. She's a false teacher. Avoid it. Turn. Run. First thing, avoid false teachers. Second thing, reject divisive people. Reject divisive people. So how do we respond to people? Well, we we reject divisive people. Now, some people like to cause division. And they'll work their way into the church, and and they, they break the unity of the church. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, reject a factitious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So he says here, reject a factitious man. That word factitious is the Greek word heretikos, and that's where we get the word heretic. And so this is a person that places their self-will opinions over the truth of the scriptures. They have an opinion, and they're going to stand in their opinion, even though the scripture and the wealth of knowledge of the Bible way over, over, overrides their opinion, but they're going to stand on what they believe is true. These people tend to divide the church. They tend to, to, to make debates. They tend to want to come. And now, these can be false teachers, but they can also just be your, your run-of-the-mill Joe. And unity within the church is very, very important to God. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 1.10. It says, Now I exert you, Brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I began to think about this. What would be a divisive spirit? Now, this can be something more than somebody that just comes in with some false doctrine. You can actually be somebody that divides the church. And it could be that you take a theological stance just because you're uncomfortable with it. Maybe you see something in the Bible, you know that it's true, but you say, I just can't believe that God would, such as Rob Bell that teaches that there is no hell, and that God never judges anybody, but he's only a God of love. Guys, that's a heresy, but some people are so uncomfortable with that doctrine that they say, I just can't believe it. That can actually cause division in church if you start spreading that around, or even to your own family. Or how about this? You live a dual life. You're one way at church, but you're another person at home. Is that causing division? Absolutely. Or maybe you're, you're one way when you're around Christians, but when you're around your buddies that aren't Christians, you totally have this shift of personality. Or maybe you're a different way at work. You know, you're a man of, of nobility and righteousness in the church, but you do things that you know are not right in your work. They're unethical. Careful. Those things cause division. And divisiveness is a, is a very serious thing to God. So what do you do with a person like this? Look at the verb. He says, reject them. Reject them. Now, that's a very strong word. So if you look at verse 10, it says, reject a factitious man after the first and second warning. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say, hey, just blow them off, get rid of them. What does he do here? He says, give them a chance. See if you can win them back, doesn't he? If you look at it there, after the first and second warning, This is the heart of God, isn't it? If somebody is in sin and and they're divisive and they're causing issues within the church or in your own family or wherever, God wants us to try to reach them with the truth. Matter of fact, this is church discipline. I'd like you to turn to the book of Matthew, verse 18, because I think it's important for you to see this. 
church discipline is a very important part of the church. Now, this is the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And this is the right way to do church discipline. And by the way, this is another reason that we as a church have membership. The reason we have membership in this church, and many Calvary chapels don't, is first, we want people to say to us, this is my church. I believe that God has called me here. I believe I'm part of this body, and I'm going to use my gifts in the church where God has called me. I'm a part of this body, and you tell us, I'm a member here. I'm part of this body. But also, you're saying, and I believe that God has called the leadership of this church to lead, and I submit to that leadership of the church, and if I need to be corrected, praise the Lord. I'll submit that God's working through the leadership, and they'll correct me. Then church discipline works. So look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector and a tax collector. So here's the process. You go to him. And you say, brother, you're, you're causing division. That's a sin before God. I just want to ask you to stop that. If he doesn't repent, you go get a friend or two friends. You come back and you see, all of you say, hey, brother, you know, you're really causing some issues in the church. You're causing some issues in our family. You're causing division. If he won't listen to them, you bring it to the leadership of the church. The leadership of the church calls them in. And in love, we say, brother, you're causing issues in the church. If they won't listen to the leadership of the church, basically at that point, you say you're not welcome here any longer. You see the process? And you see why it's a loving process? You're trying to win them. Isn't that the heart of discipline? It's redemptive. It's like our Lord. He confronts us in our sin, doesn't he? He says, you're a sinner. You need help. I sent a savior. And you find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's redemptive. This is redemptive. And this is the heart of God. And so Paul here says, we reject a factitious man after the warnings. So if you see somebody who's divisive, go to them and warn them. Bring somebody else and warn them. If they're still divisive, they're in this church, come to me. Come to one of the pastors, Pastor Neil, Pastor Ryan, and say, there's a brother or sister in the church and they're really causing division. At that point, we get involved after you've gone to them. Okay. It's always redemptive. Now, if you look at verse 11, the reason Paul is doing that, because this causes real issues. Verse 11 saying, says, knowing that such a man is perverted, sinning, being self-condemned. A divisive person, they're not trustworthy. And it's clear to everybody, it's observable that they're causing issues. Now, he, he uses a word here. He uses the word, they're perverted. That's a really, really strong word in the Greek. It literally means turned inside out. It means twisted. It means distorted. It's, it's used in medical terms to be dislocated. And, and the idea is just as you have a dislocated joint and how painful that is to the human body, it's the same way in the spiritual body of Christ. It, it's dislocated. It doesn't belong. It needs to be corrected. It says here he's self-condemned. Condemned is the Greek word katakrino, but here this is Autocatacrino, self-condemned. He's condemning himself by his actions. And guys, it's observable. Everybody sees it. It's plain. And let me tell you something. This is the devil's playground. This type of person 
is the type of person the devil loves to use. As a matter of fact, I came across something that's called the, the devil's beatitudes, and it speaks so clearly about this person. Let me share them with you. There's 11 of them. The first one is, blessed are those who are too tired, too busy, or too distracted to spend even an hour once a week with their fellow Christians. The devil says, they are my best workers. Blessed are those Christians, number two, who wait to be asked and expect to be thanked. The devil says, I can use them to divide. Number three, blessed are the overly sensitive and touchy who stop going to church. They are my missionaries who spread my lies and dissent among others. Number four, blessed are the troublemakers, for they should be called my children. Number five, blessed are the complainers, for their complaints are music to my ears, and they will lead others to do the same. Number six, this one's my favorite, blessed are those who keep a list of the preacher's mistakes, for they get nothing out of his sermons, and they never grow. Number seven, blessed is the church member who expects to be invited to his own church. He's part of the problem, not the solution. Number eight, blessed are those who gossip, for they shall cause strife and divisions that please me. Number nine, blessed are you who are easily offended, for they will soon get angry and quit, and they'll cause others to quit also. Number 10, blessed are those who do not give an offering to carry on God's work, for in stealing from God, you steal from me. And here's number 11. Blessed is he who professes to love God, but he hates his brother and sister, for he shall be called mine forever. The devil's beatitudes. Two types of people. Avoid false teachers, reject divisive people. Here's the third one. Now, these are positive, praise the Lord. Paul's going to now start to talk about the faithful, those brothers and sisters in the Lord who love the Lord and are just faithful to serve. And he's going to give two encouragements The first encouragement or the third point is help fellow servants. Help fellow servants. Part of the joy of the Christian life is just serving alongside a brother and sister. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, When I send Artemis and Tychius to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So what Paul does right here, he begins to talk about these fellow servants. So Paul goes from the negative to the positive here. Now, what Paul's doing, he's talking directly to Titus here that he needs to get involved with these four guys. He needs to help these men, Artemis, Tychius, Zenus, and Apollos. And all these guys are servants of the Lord. Each of these guys are partners with Paul. These are men who are active in ministry. They're being used by the Lord in different ways. And Paul wants Titus to come around and diligently help them. There's a camaraderie that develops when you serve with others, isn't there? There's a, I don't know how to put it, but you bind your hearts together when you come alongside people and and just start doing things together in, in the name of the Lord. And I mean, I was so blessed yesterday. I walked in here. There's over 320 women. I walked in and I walked out, man. I was like, wow. <laughs> I'm kidding. At least 320 women, if not more. And it was a blessing because not only were there 320 women who were being blessed and enjoying the festivities, but there were dozens and dozens and dozens of other people in the background. And they were busy serving and cooking and helping. And man, that's what it's about, guys. That's what it's about. And I'm a blessed pastor. We, we, we have so many people like this, don't we? I mean, last week, you know, 
part of a team of 48 that goes down to Mexico and I have Pastor Ryan here, he's preaching and, and a team helping. And, and then the week before that, I was up in the mountains with our leadership team praying for the church and talking about the different needs in the church and Pastor Neil's covering in the pulpit. I think about our children's ministry where you have Katie and you have Melinda Woods and you have Brooke Lampkin. And then you have dozens and dozens of people who care for the children of this church. And how about the women's ministry? Karen Nelson might be the lead, but there are dozens of ladies that come alongside in prayer and help that organize and put those things together. Our youth department serves over 100 youth every week and serves over 50 college-age students every week with Pastor Ryan and Jake, but there are dozens of leaders, dozens of helpers that help in there. You don't know this, but the administration of the church, the finances, all this, is done by Heidi Hoover, but there are a number of people that come alongside Heidi and help her with all that. And how about our worship ministry? We have Al Bartello, right? We have Brooke Lampkin. We have Josh Medina that lead the teams. But there are dozens of people that use their gifts for the Lord. And on and on I could go. I said, this is church. This is what it's about. People helping people. People serving the Lord by serving one another. And so Paul writes this. It's just a given. And he says, when I send Artemis or Tychius to you, Now, first of all, we know that Titus did not serve here indefinitely. He did leave eventually. So he leaves the island of Crete. And and so Paul's going to send either Artemis or Tychius. We we don't know anything about Artemis. He's only here in the New Testament. But the one thing that we do know is this guy's got to be faithful. I mean, Titus was told to set the church in order. And so when we know that there's false teachers roaming around, so obviously this guy's a godly guy. He's helping Paul. And so we know he's a godly man. We know a lot more about Tychius or Tychus, however you want to pronounce that. He's accompanied Paul on a number of missionary journeys, but he also would be a very, very faithful man. And when you look at verse 12, it says, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Titus himself is a faithful man. Paul's saying, I'm sending them to take your place, but I'm asking you to come and take their place. I need you, brother. I need your help. I need the gifts that you have. We're not really clear where Nicopolis is. Matter of fact, there were n- there's nine different Nicopolises that I found in the New Testament. Basically, it means a city of victory. In the Roman times, when the Romans would come and they, they'd conquer a city, they'd give it the name Nicopolis. But most people feel that when Paul wrote this, he probably wrote it from Philippi or somewhere in that area in Macedonia. And so, but it was probably here that um, he was taken for his second imprisonment in Rome. Because when he's writing this, it's right in between his first and second imprisonment. So Titus is to help those two men. But not only that, he's also to diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos so that there's nothing lacking for them. Now, Zenos is a lawyer. We don't really know if he's a Roman or a Jew because he has a Roman name. But often Jews would take Roman names. Paul is a Roman name, even though his real name is Saul, right? So we don't know if he was a, knew the law of Rome or if he knew the law of God that kind of thing. But that's all we know of him is right here. Apollos we know a lot about. He was a strong preacher. He was used of God mightily and, and he often went and many people came to Christ through his ministry. As a matter of fact, Acts eighteen twenty eight says, for he was powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. We're to be servants, helping one another. And guys, this is what I saw lived out in the flesh when we were on the Mexico trip. Now, you saw pictures there of the things that we did, but I can tell you, we did five different work projects. 
We, we had working hands, man. It was busy, busy, busy. We built a deck, put in a floor, built a table, fixed a roof, cleared a field. Man, working. But not only that, we did four different gospel outreaches. Trying to bring the word. Why do we, why do, we do the work? Brings people, blesses the people. Main line, bring the gospel. So we got four different opportunities to share the gospel. We shared the gospel with kids. We shared the gospel with ladies. We shared the gospel in a church service. We shared the gospel on a soccer field. 48 people working as one. Servants. Servants of Christ. And if you aren't serving in some way, can I please encourage you as your pastor? You are missing it. You're missing it. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, do we serve to get brownie points? No. We serve because he served us. We serve because he loved us. And this motivates our heart to give back, doesn't it? So, we're called to help fellow servants. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth and final one. What a love, faithful friends. Love, faithful friends. I think one of the greatest joys of the Christian life is you meet other people that are like you or not like you, but because of Christ, there is a connection unlike any other. And I can tell you, I've been on many different mission trips now, and there is an instant connection to somebody that knows Jesus, even if you don't speak the language. The blood of Christ is thicker than water. It, it connects us. And many times, they become your closest family member, friend type people. So look at verses 14 and 15. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me begin by just saying Christian love is family love. When you became a member of the church, a member of God's family, when you received Christ, when you became born again, you were adopted. Jesus adopted you into the family of God. And you become a family member with all your brothers and sisters in Christ. And where Paul begins here, he begins to press on this area of good deeds again. This idea of engaging in good, good deeds because there's a lot of pressing needs. I just want to back this up with we don't do good deeds so that at the end we hope we're going to get into heaven and God's weighing them out. I hope you understand that. But many people believe that. What motivates our good deeds is because Christ has been so good to us. And out of love, we just want to serve our Lord. And through that, the good deeds happen. On a given Sunday here, you have any, anywhere from 550 to 700 people walk through the doors of this church. But many, many, over 100 at least, are serving every Sunday. Good deeds, doing things to please the Lord. And, and you want to have a fruitful life, not an unfruitful life. And I can tell you, the way that you have a fruitful life as a Christian is two ways. One is through service, and the other is through the love of relationships, getting to know one another, blessing other people. And Paul's basically saying this in verse 15. All of us here greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you all. Paul's saying, hey, all of us over here, hey, we love you guys. And I know that you guys over there, you love us. What's he saying? Faithful friends. Love for one another. This is the reality of the Christian faith. This is what the difference is that the world will see. And that word love there is the word phileo, and it means brotherly or family love. 
When you become a Christian, you're entered in. And then the way we treat one another really matters to God. As a matter of fact, Christ made such a strong statement about this. In John 13, 35, he says, By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That connection, that love for friends in the ministry, that love for fellow brothers and sisters, that is the evidence that God says, that Paul says, that Jesus says, makes the difference. And when people see that, they go, wow, there's something to do that. If you're not experiencing that, something's up. Now, I see that in our church. I have more people that are new to this church say, wow, you guys are friendly. You're loving. Why is that? Because we love Jesus. And it's not hard for us to walk up to somebody and just say, you know, hey, how you doing, man? Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And we are glad if you're new here. We're, we're so glad you're here. Because the love of Christ is evident in the person that's been changed by Christ, isn't it? And so that's where Paul ends in this, in this area of love. And he ends with that final statement, grace be to you all, because that love is only possible by the grace of God. Do you know that grace? Do you have Christ? I pray that you do, because this Christmas season, how special is it when the love of God and the grace of Christ is in our life, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. And as Paul closed out this letter, Father, as he, as he talked about avoiding false teachers, Lord, as, as rejecting these divisive people, Lord, as he talked about how we're to, to help fellow servants and, and to love each other as friends, Lord, I just pray, Father, that uh, we can live out Christ before others. Lord, we're moving into the Christmas season. Lord, we're going to be meeting with family and friends and, and acquaintances and business partners and, and all these different people, Lord. May, may they see Jesus in us, Lord. May you just make it so plain that there's something different, that the Holy Spirit is, is evident and that we're changed, that we're yours, and that when they see us, they'll know that we're your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand?